Right. Amen. Good stuff. All right. We are in Psalm 106 this morning. Middle of your Bible. Hopefully you got a Bible. If you don't, I'd love to give you one. But if you got your Bible, open it up to the middle and you'll be close to Psalm 106. We are in the middle of a series on Psalms. We're in the middle of a series on Psalms. This is week four. And we have four more weeks to go uh, with one week in between there where we won't have me preaching because I'll be in Mexico, which is this coming Sunday. We have our mission trip coming up this coming Sunday, so be in prayer for that. Uh, as, we, as you're turning to Psalm 106, just want to remind you that we do have Camp D-Town starting this week. Our youth uh, lead Camp D-Town. The idea of Camp D-Town is to bring church camp home. That's what the kids try to do, and they do a great job of it. Our youth uh, lead all of it. All we do is is as crowd control. The adults do crowd control and drive vehicles and keep them across the street and back and forth without getting run over or whatever else. And so our job is to make sure we don't lose anybody and the, and the youth do the rest of the work. And we really look forward to that. It's 5 to 7.30, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of this week. So please be in prayer for that. And please be in prayer for our mission team as we leave out very early uh, a week from today to go to Mexico to build two houses. Um, so we're looking forward to that. Um, if you have a child that you want to go to Camp D-Town and you have not pre-registered them, if you would go ahead and do that on fbcdan.com, that would really help. just helps us have an idea of numbers. Uh, we're expecting pretty good numbers, but we like, to, we like to have an idea, and it really helps if you will pre-register. So on fbcdan.com, you can't miss it. It's right there. Fill that information out real quick, and that will help us prepare. So let's dig in to Psalm 106 this morning. Psalm 106 is an exilic psalm. That's a fancy word for saying that it was a psalm during the time of Israel's exile. Uh, if you don't know your Bible history or things like that, Israel was its own nation, and then it was taken over by the Babylonians and, and officially taken over and exiled in 586 B.C., 586 B.C., so that would be a long time ago, uh, almost 2,600 years so they were defeated and taken over by Babylon. They're exiled from Jerusalem. They're exiled from Judea, their home country. And they're brought into Babylon as captors, as slaves. The Babylonians destroy the temple in Jerusalem, effectively ending the Jews' ability to worship the Lord with that blow. It's a big blow to them. It's a terrible, it's a difficult time in Israel's history. It's something that's brought on by their own actions, but it's a difficult time in their history. So... The, the psalmist is in that time in this psalm we're looking at, and he is desiring to be out of that time. Have you ever been in a time in your life that you were going through something and you were ready to be out of that time? That's where this guy is in this psalm, this author of this psalm. He is going through something hard. He is going through something difficult. He feels, he feels hopeless. He feels down and out. He feels like he feels like it's just never going to get any better. So you may not understand Israel being exiled, but we all understand being in a place that is hard, that we want to be out of, and that we're hoping God will get us out of that. That's, that's the heart behind this psalm. Now he does that, the psalmist does that, by going through some major events in Israel's history. So you will get a mini Bible history lesson today. Uh, or for those that don't know these things and those that do, you'll get a reminder. But So there's a lot, there's a lot going on in this psalm. We could seriously spend a month on it, but we're not. I promise. <laughs> All right, starting in verse 1. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to go through it kind of verse by verse. Verse 1, 
of Psalm 106. Hallelujah, give thanks to the Lord. Hallelujah, give thanks to the Lord. Hallelujah is that word. We say hallelujah in English, it's hallelujah in the Hebrew. It literally means praise Yahweh. Yah as in short for Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Hallelujah is praise. Most often translated as praise the Lord in English. Most of the time when you see praise the Lord in your English Bible, that came from this word, hallelujah. It's one reason why I like the Holman translation, because it keeps words like this in the language. I like to say hallelujah. Nothing wrong with saying praise the Lord, but I like to know when hallelujah is being used. So, uh, notice the pattern of the Psalms. Notice the pattern of the Psalms. The, the pattern of worship as we go through this series, the praise and the thanksgiving, it's always at the start. It's always the place to start. Praise and thanksgiving is always the place to start. I just told you where this guy is and what he's going through, but he doesn't start there. He starts with praise and thanksgiving. Why? One, because God's worth it, but I think God calls us to do that because it affects us. It changes our mindset. It changes our heart. It makes us ready to receive what God is going to share when we're praying to him. It makes us, it changes everything about how we look at the world. So start with praise and thanksgiving. Praise Jesus. Give thanks to the Lord. Praise Yahweh. Give thanks to Yahweh. So how, how, how do I pray? Praise and thanks to God. How, how do I worship? Praise and thanks to God. How do I start my day? Praise and thanks to God. How do I finish my day? With praise and thanksgiving to God. How do I go about my day? With praise and thanksgiving to God. It's always the place to start. It's always the place to return to. When you're getting in a funk, come back to it. There's a reason why the Psalms repeat this pattern of praise over and over and over and over. Because we are a people that is prone to forget. We are a people that is prone to wonder. Some of you are already chasing squirrels in your minds. And we just three minutes into this thing. That's how we are. We're prone to wonder. We're prone to chase things. We're prone to forget. So we need to start, and we need to do it over and over and over and over. Why should we praise him? Why should we praise him? I hope you pick up on this pattern. If you don't get anything else out of this series, I hope you pick up on this pattern. Why do we praise him? Next verse. For he is good. His faithful love endures forever. We talked about that word good when we studied Psalm 136 the first week of this series. If you haven't seen that, it's always available on fbcdan.com. And we looked in depth at this truth that his faithful love endures forever. We looked at that ad nauseum when we looked at Psalm 136 because it repeats it every single verse in that psalm. It's repeated over and over and over and over. But this truth is all over scripture that God's faithful love endures forever. God and his chesed is that word, faithful love, loving kindness, Compassion in action, it's eternal. It never, ever, ever ends. Say, never, ever. It never, ever ends. God's faithful love never, ever ends because he, he never ends. And if he can't end, then neither can his faithful love, neither can his said. Here's something kind of odd, I think. First Chronicles 16.34 states this exact same phrase. When's the last time you opened up to First Chronicles? Did a little reading. I bet ain't none of you been in there in your devotionals here lately. Been skipping over that one, I bet you. It's like, didn't I just read this in First and Second Kings? Yes, yes, you did. But there's a little more in there than that. It's confusing, I know. <laughs> it says it there too. Well, guess what? 
You'll find it there in 1 Chronicles. You'll find it all over the Psalms. You'll find it all over Scripture. God's faithful love is eternal. His love is eternal because he is eternal. So, hallelujah. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Verse 2. Who can declare the Lord's mighty acts and proclaim all the praise due him? After saying this big statement to start off the psalm, then he asks a rhetorical question. Because it is a rhetorical question because there isn't an answer to this question. No one can do this. Who, who can declare the Lord's mighty acts or proclaim all the praise due him? Nobody. We can try. We should try. That's how big he is. That's how good he is. Like the song tells us, when we've been there 10,000 years, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. That's how long it's going to take. You know how long it's going to take to proclaim the mighty acts of God and to give the praise due him? You know how long it's going to take? Eternity. That's how long it's going to take. That's how good and how big he is. And that's, some of you just went, I don't, I, don't, I don't understand the words you just said. Well, I don't either, but I know it's true. He's Yahweh God, and he will receive praise. Continuing, verse 3. Hopefully I click through these right, Aaron. If I get lost up there, fix me, please. Verse 3. How happy are those who uphold justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Now the psalmist, he starts with praise and thanksgiving, as is always the, a, a very wise place to start. And then he moves to declaration. He's declaring here. And it's no mistake that he goes here before he gets to the meat of this psalm because the meat of this psalm ain't easy what's going on in this psalm this is the end of the introduction he's about to move to a request and then on to the meat of it all but here here is the is the declaration this word here happy is esher that's the word that we use for happy or blessed listen to all the ways that, that Proverbs says a, a person is blessed or is happy. I'm going to just read these off real fast, so stay with me. Proverbs 3.13. Happy is a man who finds wisdom and who acquires knowledge. And now, my sons, listen to me. Those who keep my ways are happy. Anyone who listens to me is happy, watching at my doors every day, watching by the posts of my doorway. The one who despises his neighbor sins, but whoever shows kindness to the poor will be happy. The one who understands a matter finds success, and the one who trusts in the Lord will be happy. The one who lives with integrity is righteous. His children who come after him will be happy. Happy is the one who is always reverent. There's a lost concept. Happy is the one who is always reverent, but one who hardens his heart will fall into trouble. And then Proverbs 29, 18. These are all throughout the Proverbs. Without revelation, people run wild, but the one who listens to instruction will be happy, blessed. Same word. It's the same word. Asher is that word, like the name, but spelled with an E. So he declares this. We just do it God's way. It works. We're blessed. We are happy. We are satisfied. It's a bold declaration to make before he goes into what he's fixing to go into. I hope you get, get that as we move forward if you haven't read this psalm. But it's a bold declaration to make. Hey, we ought to just do it God's way. If we just listen to God and obey, things will work out. But here's nine examples he's fixing to get into that, that didn't happen in our history. Verse 4, moving right along. Remember me, Lord, when you show favor to your people. Come to me with your salvation so that I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones. Rejoice in the joy of your nation and boast about your heritage. He started with praise and thanksgiving in the psalm, and this prayer 
because they understand they are one and the same. He started there. It's a prayer. It's a psalm. It's the same thing. Now he moves to petition. Lord, remember me. Keep me as part of your people, the people you have promised to bless and show favor and to bring salvation to. Let me enjoy the prosperity and the rejoicing of being with you and with your people in your promised land that we are no longer in, Lord. But remember me. I'm expecting you to get me there. I'm expecting you to save me. I'm expecting you to do something mighty. Remember when you, when you do. Because right now, Lord, we are a scattered and exiled people. Lord, I need, as we just sang, your strength in this time. Because your blessings and your favor, they seem so distant, it's hard to even still believe they're true and real. I need you to remember me, Lord, when it's salvation seems impossible. Because I have fallen so far off the path that God has called me onto. I have fallen so far away from you, God. Your, the, your ability to save me seems impossible now. That's what he's crying out for. Now, jumping ahead just a little bit. If that's you, you've fallen away. Buddy, I hear to tell you, if nothing else teaches you that you're not too far away, this psalm will. This psalm's going to teach you that you're not too far away from God for him to save you, but he's crying out for that. Cry out to God. If you're in that place today, cry out to God. Remember me, Lord. Remember me, Jesus. Save me, Lord, from myself and from where I am at. Moving along. Some of you are thinking, man, there's, I skipped ahead. There's 48 verses. You better pick it up, preacher. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Verse 6. Both we and our fathers have sinned. Whoa. We have done wrong and have acted wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not grasp the significance of your wonderful works or remember your acts of faithful love. Instead, they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. We, the psalmist says, we and our fathers, he includes himself, right in the middle in the midst of these sinners. We need you. You're faithful and true. We don't remember what you have done. We forget. We forget, God. We forget that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Instead, our rebellion comes on the heels of your, one of your greatest movements, one, one of the biggest blessings that God has ever done Right after that, they forget and start sinning. That's what the psalmist is saying here. The Red Sea. He's, pointing, he's making a point of pointing out the Red Sea. But this God, the God, before he gets to what they've done, he reminds them in verse 8. This God, yet, even though I'm a sinner, we're a sinner, and our fathers, forefathers before us were sinners, yet he saved them because of, say it with me if you're looking up there, because of, his name to make his power known. Amen. No, it ain't about you. It ain't about you. He saved them because of his name and to make his power known. Moving right along into these wretched sinners, these dirty, rotten sinners. He rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the adversary. He redeemed them. From the hand of the enemy. Moving right along, verse 11. 
Water covered their foes. Not one of them remained. Then they believed his promises and sang his praises. He did this most miraculous thing, and they believed and praised him in this moment. What is this miraculous thing? So I'll go back real quick. 1800 B.C. to about 1400 B.C. That's the easy way to remember it. 400 years this nation has grown into millions of people and now been subjugated by a, by a pharaoh that does not remember Joseph, does not remember the good things of God's people, does not remember them, does not want them, is trying to exterminate them. He's trying to commit genocide and, and finish them as being a people. And God has miraculously saved them. He literally parted a sea. Now, I know you've seen uh, old boy playing Moses, Charleston Heston, do all that. And so it's just become second nature to us that that happens. But that's not normal. That's a big deal. It says that they walked and not a drop of water got on their feet. They just walked across the sea. And then the most powerful army in the world follows them into the sea, and then is no more. That's what God had just done. So the psalmist is reminding them, making sure, hey, in case y'all forgot, in Sunday school, what the Red Sea, what happened at the Red Sea, this is what happened at the Red Sea. But it didn't last very long for all Israel, did it? didn't last for them very long at all, because now we get into the nitty-gritty. They soon forgot his works. It would not wait for his counsel. They were seized with craving in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. He gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease among them. Now, I'll repeat this a couple of times to remind you, but these events he goes through are not in chronological order. They're not in chronological order. They're not supposed to be. He kind of builds to one major mess up. They're all major mess up, a big one. There's nine things he talks about right here, and they're all out of order, and they're not supposed to be in order. Excuse me as I rudely burp into the microphone. So this is event one of nine, not in chronological order. They're in theological order because they're making a point. Now, here, as George Morrison wrote, the Lord took out Israel, took, excuse me, took Israel out of Egypt in one night, but it took him 40 years to take Egypt out of Israel. Those of you that know this story know what I'm talking about. They get out of Egypt like that, but they don't go straight to the promised land. Why? Because they got to learn not to be a pagan, nasty nation. they got to learn how to follow God. They're still trying to learn how to follow God. We want to get right down to it, and so are we. But that's that's where we're at right here. So they were in the wilderness, and they complained. They were in the wilderness, and they complained. Shocker. The Lord's assembly got together and started whining about not getting what they want. What were they complaining about? Lack of meat. Lord, we don't have any meat. I mean, sure, you're raining down bread from heaven that we call manna. Literally, this bread from heaven, it ain't enough, God. Where's my meat? I want my meat. I was a slave in Egypt. I was treated brutally, but at least I had meat. You're being all nice and kind, but where's the meat, bro? They're complaining. God sends them quail. You may have missed this. Three feet deep and about a radius of 10 miles all the way around them. Now, that's a lot of quail. I can't do that math, but that's a lot. Somebody a lot smarter than me go home and figure out how many quail that is. Three feet deep and a day's walk in any direction, quail. Everywhere that they could possibly look. This is in Numbers 11. 
verse 33, while the meat was still between their teeth, because it was chewed, the Lord's anger burned against the people, and the Lord struck them with a very severe plague. So they named the place Kibroth Hata'ava, because they were because there they were buried, because there they buried the people who had craved the meat. Event one of nine. Kibroth Hita'ava means graves of craving. Careful about those cravings. Careful about those natural cravings. Well, that's just the way I'm made. God wouldn't have made me like this if it wasn't okay. That's a fool's errand. Careful with those natural cravings. Sometimes they lead to graves. Sometimes they lead to graves created by God to put you there. Now, I'm not going to chase that rabbit, but that is, that is possibly the case. Here we go. That was the first thing. Verse 16. In the camp they were envious of Moses and of Aaron, the Lord's holy one. The earth opened up and swallowed Dathan. It covered the assembly of Abiram. Fire blazed throughout their assembly. Flames consumed by the wicked. What's the key element of event number two or, or misgiving number two? What does he say? What's the problem here? Envy. Jealousy. Nasty, old-fashioned, green-eyed jealousy. Hey, how come Moses and Aaron, and why not me? How come they get this and I don't? How come he gets to do that and I don't? How come the Lord's blessing him and not me? Good old-fashioned jealousy. Ooh, it's a nasty thing. Nasty, nasty thing. This recalls the events of number 16. Dathan and Abiram, along with the Levite Korah, took 250 prominent Israelite men who were leaders of their community and representatives in the assembly, and they rebelled against Moses, verse 3, in, verse, in chapter 11 of Numbers. They came together against Moses and Aaron and told them, you've gone too far. Everyone in the entire community is holy. Stop preaching about that holiness, preacher. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Moses fell face down at them saying this and said, hey, bud, tomorrow... You bring your fire pans, and we'll bring ours, and we'll just see who the Lord's chosen. Woo. The next day, Moses said in verse 28, Then Moses said, This is how you will know that the Lord sent me to do all these things, and that it was not on my own. If these men die naturally, as all people would, and suffer the fate of all, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something unprecedented, and the grounds open its mouth and swallows them along with all their belongings to them so that they go down alive into Sheol, the grave, and you will then you will know that these men have despised the Lord. Picking it up on the screen in verse 31 of Numbers 11. Just as he finished speaking all these words, Moses saying those things, the ground beneath them split open, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households. All Korah's people and all their possessions, they went down alive into Sheol with all that belonged to them. The earth closed over them, and they vanished from the assembly. Woo! You think they'd learn to quit messing with this God and start taking him seriously. You'd think we would, too. Back to the psalm, because I won't chase that. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped the cast metal image. They exchanged their glory of the image of a grass-eating ox. They forgot God, their Savior, and did great things in Egypt. 
who did great things in Egypt. Wonderful works in the land of Ham. Awe-inspiring acts at the Red Sea. At Horeb, that's the ancient word for Mount Sinai. That's talking about Mount Sinai when it says at Horeb. That's the ancient name. Same place. The place that the law was given. The place where God speaks to Moses for 40 days on top of a mountain. The place where the finger of God inscribes the law onto the tablets. All that's taking place while these jokers get a little impatient and build a golden calf to worship as Moses is up on the mountain. And if Moses had not intervened and pleaded mercy on their behalf, God says right here in the scriptures that he would have destroyed them all that day. You know what? Never mind. I'll choose somebody else. But the Lord knew that he had chosen the right man. He had chosen Moses for the job, continuing in the psalm. So he said he would have destroyed them if Moses, his chosen one, had not stood before him in the breach to turn his wrath away from destroying them. Whew. It's a little heavy. Event number four, verse 24. Recalling the moment declared that, that the, declaring that the first generation that was emancipated from Egypt would not see the promised land. This is from Numbers 13 and 14, summarized in the psalm here, 106, 24. They despised the pleasant land and did not believe, did not believe his promise. They grumbled in their tents and did not listen to the Lord's voice. So he raised his hand against them with an oath that he would make them fall in the desert and would disperse excuse me, their descendants among the nations, scattering them throughout the lands. What happens in this event in Numbers 13 and 14? Well, this is where they say, hey, I know God said we could have this land, but did he mean that? Let's get 12 spies and let's let them go scout it out and see if it's worth fighting, see if we can win it, see if we can actually win this battle that God said we're going to win. Actually, God didn't even say he was going to win a battle. God just said they would have it. Many theologians and many scholars think that had they obeyed at this point, they would have just walked into the land and been given the land by their enemies instead of having to fight a now two and a half millennia war over that land. Twelve spies representing the twelve tribes of Egypt. They go in and they come back with a report that the land was indeed luxurious. It is the land of milk and honey, but there's fearsome warriors that live there. Big old giants. Big old mean bad guys. Rather than trusting in their warrior God to provide the victory, they panicked. Because of their lack of trust, God decreed they would die in the wilderness. That's how the Tyndale says it. He raised his hand, it says here, taking a formal oath. They're not going to see the promised land for their lack of faith. When is this we're talking about? Because this is not chronological order. This is about two years after they've left Egypt. It's only been two years since these people have crossed the Red Sea and seen Egypt's army swallowed up and drowned before their very eyes. Two years, and they've already forgotten who it is that they're working with. They didn't have to throw a single punch, swing a single sword, jab a single spear, and Egypt was defeated. And they don't think God's going to give them the promised land? He certainly wanted to, but they weren't ready. What did they want? Catch this. Some of you need to hear this one today. If you don't hear anything else, they wanted more facts. Not faith. We need more information so we can make an informed decision about this thing God's called us to do. Now, I'm not against information. I'm a knowledge enthusiast. But when facts stand in, stand in the way of faith, we're probably being disobedient in whatever that is. Woo, moving right along. Preacher, hurting. Verse 28, they aligned themselves with 
Baal of Fior, and eight sacrifices offered to the lifeless gods. They provoked the Lord with their deeds, and a plague broke out against them. But Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped. It was credited to him as righteousness throughout all the generations to come. This is event five. Event four, the one we just read, that's the big one. This is event five. Wiersbe recounts it like this. The king of Moab hired the prophet of Balaam. This is Numbers 25, where this is summarizing this, this psalm. Hired the prophet Balaam to curse the nation of Israel, but God turned his curses into blessings. But Balaam knew how to trap Israel the old, same old way that it's worked for years and years and years, works to this day, and will continue working as long as we live in a fallen world. He knew how to trap Israel. He suggested that the king act like a good neighbor and invite the Jewish tribal leaders to share a feast with the Moabites. This would be a religious feast, of course, which meant eating meat dedicated to demons and dead people, and this is the way Wiersbe says it, cohabitating, cohabitating with cult prostitutes. Catch that? They ate meat, sacrificed to fake gods, and had sex with prostitutes in the temple as an act of worship. Now, how far have you fallen from the Lord? I hope not that far. And he hadn't given up on these people. What makes you think he's going to give up on you? That's where, that's, this is event five. That's what, that's what takes place here. It would have cost more, more lives than it did. 24,000 people. God, you want to do that? You're done. Would have been more, but Phineas, the son of the high priest in Numbers 25, 7 through 8, does this. When Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw this, what did he see? An Israelite man walked right in front of Moses with the cult prostitute from the temple into his tent. It doesn't say what they went in there and did, but it's surely implied like most of the smut television that you watch. Oh, <laughs> some of y'all caught that. Sorry. I'll stay on, I'll stay on point. <laughs> when he saw this, he got up from the assembly, took a spear in his hand, followed the Israelite man into the tent, and drove it through the Israelite man and the woman through her belly. Then the plague on the Israelites was stopped. You think the Bible's boring? You're crazy. There's a whole lot of stuff going on in this thing. If we just read it and spend a little time in it, let the Lord change our heart, hopefully. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Phineas, son of Eleazar, this is in Numbers 25, verse 11, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath on the Israelites because he was zealous among them with my zeal so that I did not destroy the Israelites in my zeal. Therefore declare, I grant my covenant of peace. Blood's got to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Here we go. Verse 32, back to the psalm. They angered the Lord at the waters of Meribah, and Moses suffered because of them, for they embittered his spirit, and he spoke rashly with his lips. Now Moses, the great Moses, event number six of nine discussed in this psalm. Remember, not, this is not in chronological order, because this is towards the end of the 40-year wandering. He became proud and angry and took for himself the glory that belonged to the Lord. This is Numbers 20. He became angry and strikes a rock to get water out of it for these complaining wine bags that he's responsible for instead of just speaking to the rock, which is what God told him to do. He took the glory that was supposed to go to the Lord. The Lord said, speak to the rock and the water will come out. And he gets frustrated. He has an outburst of anger. And he says, you know what, you bums? Boom! 
and enough water comes out for millions of people and their cattle and their animals to have water. But he disobeyed the Lord. So Moses doesn't get to go in the promised land. I've always thought, and I know this is wrong of me and sinful of me and prideful of me, and Lord, I try to repent of this heart. I've always thought Moses got a raw deal. Honestly, the dude was so good throughout this whole thing, and he lets these whining complainers make him, he makes one mistake and doesn't get to go in the promised land. I know the Lord knows best, but I just feel bad for Moses. I really do. It costs him the right to enter into the promised land because he tried to take the glory that belonged to the Lord. God don't play that. He don't play that game. Continuing, verse 34, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them, but mingled with the nations and adopted their ways. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. Event number seven, what did they do wrong? They didn't kill the bad guys. They didn't kill the bad guys like God told them to. And he told them to kill all of them. What? God wanted his people to kill everyone in the promised land? Why? How could he? What's the purpose of that? How can a good and loving and holy God call people to kill other people? Well, we could continue and see what this psalm says, as we will. They sacrificed their sons because of not doing this and mingling with these people over time. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. So the land became polluted with blood. They defiled themselves by their actions and prostituted themselves by their deeds. Wiersbe says this well. He says it well. They had been married to Jehovah, to Yahweh, at Sinai. But now they prostituted themselves to the idols and grieved the Lord, inviting on his chastening. This is event number eight. Why did God want them to destroy the evil that was in that land? Because they sacrificed children to their fake gods. And then Israel joined in because they didn't obey God and get rid of of this evil from the world. Why is God eventually going to get rid of evil forever? That's why. Because that's the heart of man left to himself without the Spirit of the Lord. That's what every single one of us would devolve into if it were not for the Spirit of the Lord reigning in our lives. Every single one of us. Say, I would never do something like that. You just let the electricity and the internet go out for about I don't know. Some of y'all can barely make it seven minutes, but it'd be Lord of the Flies around here. That's the heart of man. It's a scary thing. Thank you, Lord, for keeping us in check. Verse 40. Therefore the Lord's anger burned against his people, and he abhorred his own inheritance. He handed them over to the nations. Those who hated them ruled them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. He rescued them many times. But they continued to rebel deliberately and were beaten down by their sin. And this is event number nine. This is eventually what leads to the exile. The Lord brought six nations against Israel for over a hundred years. This is the time of the judges, eventually into the exile. Punished his people right in their own land. When they cried out, when they cried out for him, he had mercy. He heard them. 
and he raised up judges to deliver them from their enemies. But then the nation would lapse into idolatry again. The cycle was repeated over and over. In his mercy, the Lord heard their cries and forgave them, but this could not and will not go on forever. When he heard their cry, he took note of their distress, remembered his covenant with them, and relented according to his riches of his faithful love. He caused them to be pitied before all their captors. When it says he remembered them, this does not mean that God forgot. God doesn't forget. He doesn't need post-it notes or reminders on his phone. He doesn't forget. It doesn't mean he remembers only in his mind because he had forgotten. It means to act. To remember is to act upon what you have promised. Like, like the, the communion table says, do this in remembrance of me. It's an act it's an act of the will. When we take communion, it's not only a memory in the mind, but it's a work of the will. It's a memory in action. He relented because they were such wonderful people and had accepted him, accepted him, right? Isn't that what it says right here? He relented because the Israelites were such wonderful, faithful worshipers and followers of Yahweh God. Is that what it says? Is that what it says? Because they were such good Sunday school attendees, God relented. Is that what it says? No. What does it say they did? What was their part? Read that first part. When he heard their cry, they cried out to him. And according to his faithful love, his has said, he acted. Even though they are ex exiled and a captured people, the last part of this verse, God even causes their enemies to have mercy on them. He's such a good, faithful, loving God. The psalmist has given nine examples and couldn't give, couldn't give, could have given a hundred more if he wanted to of their faithlessness to God. And then he goes on, 47. Save us, Yahweh our God. Remember this psalmist and where he's at. And gather us from the nation so that we may give thanks to your holy name and rejoice in your praise. The psalmist points out all the times Israel is unfaithful. All these major times that they're unfaithful. They're obstinate. And yet, God is faithful. God delivered them then. He can deliver them now. That's what this verse is saying. God, you delivered them then through all of that evil, terrible stuff. And I believe, God, you can deliver us now. He's the same God who did all those things. He's the same God who can deliver us now in exile. And he's the same God that can deliver us now in this day. You're the same God that did all that stuff, God. I know you can deliver us from the Babylonians and, they're in, and, and us as an entirely captured people. God, save us. Save us. God, save us. And God uses the Babylonians' enemy, the Persians, and King Cyrus of Persia in 538 B.C. They defeat the Babylonians, and then King Cyrus decrees the Jews can return to Jerusalem. The temple's rebuilt by Nehemiah. God hears the cries of his people and remembers. That's not included in this psalm because it was written before it happened, but the psalmist believed it was going to happen. You're the same God. I know you can do it. I know you will do it. I trust you. You're 
faithful covenant God. You promised that we would have that land, that if we repented and turned back to you, you would keep us in that land, give us back that land, and I believe you're going to do it. You are the same God that did those things. I know you can do this too. That's what he's saying here. Save us, Yahweh. Save us so that we can give thanks to your holy name, so we can praise you, so we can rejoice in your praise, so we can worship you. I ask you, have you cried out? Save me. Save me, God. It's a prayer he will answer. It's a prayer he wants to answer. Cry out to him. Save me, God. Lord Jesus, save me. Say, I don't feel saved. Have you cried out to God? Cry out to God. Recognize your wickedness. Recognize your sinfulness. Recognize your eternal destination. And cry out to him for salvation. He will remember. He always does. And here's the song, this last verse, of the saved. Those who have done that. The last verse of this song. May Yahweh... The God of Israel be praised from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, and hallelujah. So be it, and praise to God, the one and only God. It's a doxology that this finishes with. It's actually the end of, the, of book four. There's five books of the Psalms. This is the end of book four. It's a doxology that is, that is the ending, not just of this psalm, but of, of this entire fourth book. So let me give you a quick list, and we'll get out. Let's recap that real quick. One, graves of craving. Kibrath hata'ava. More, 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 God, more, God, more, God, more, more, more. This is good, but more. This is good, but more. Be careful of more. It's not always bad, but it sure can be. Be careful of more. Two, envy. Three, idol worship. Four, lack of faith, trust. Five, lack of obedience to God's calling. Six, Outbursts of anger, Moses at the rock. Seven, lack of holiness, mingling with the world. Eight, sacrificing two and four of the wrong things. And nine, wanting a little bit of God and a little bit of the world. Wanting it your way. I wonder where you fall on that list. Because I know I do. More of them than I'd like to admit. Where do you fall on that list today? The same God that part of the Red Sea is the same God that swallowed up the envious traitors to Moses and Aaron, is the same God who restored Israel from exile, is the same God who promised David his kingly line would last forever, is the same God who brought his son forth of the line of David, is the same God who shed his blood for you on the cross on a hill called Calvary, is the same God who laid in the tomb dead for three days, is the same God who rose back to life, is the same God who promises to come back and restore his kingdom forever, the same God who is going to send Satan and his demons to hell forever and ever and ever and ever, is the same God who promises a place where there will be no more pain, no more sadness, no more tears, no more seeing your loved ones suffering in a hospital bed, no more, no more laying your loved ones to rest because death will be no more. It's a perfect, perfect paradise with the perfect heavenly 
Father. He's the same God, and he deserves your praise and your worship and your sacrifice and your obedience because he hasn't ever changed, and he ain't going to start today. So, we finish like this. That verse. May Yahweh, the God of Israel, be praised mm. from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. and hallelujah. I'll pray for us. If you've got business to attend to during this time, please do. Father, we come to you, Lord, and we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you deserve to be praised. We thank you, God, that you have proven time and time and time and time and time again that you are faithful. God, you are the same God because you are eternal, and eternal things can't change. They don't change with the whims of time and the whims of emotion and the whims of, of, the, of this world. God, you are eternal God. God, help us to trust in that, to hear your word and obey your word in our lives, God. And thank you, God, that you do not give up on us, even though you should have a long, long time ago. But you don't. And not because we're worthy, but because you're good. You're full of hesed. Your faithful, loving kindness, God. May we remember that today and praise you for it forever. In Jesus' name, amen.